witnessing the end of an ECW powerbomb coming up. This will be all. Another franchise hammering Bam Bam Bigelow. He slid through. Ladies and gentlemen, pay attention. This is your boy, the coach from the WWE. I would like to welcome you to the very first wrestling podcast in the world to take you on a weekly deep dive in the classic matches along with legends of the squared circle. Enjoy the discussion. Enjoy the back and forth. There's so much to get into. Ladies and gentlemen, this is the payoff jeff it's my first ever ecw show november to remember 1997 just outside of pittsburgh where i grew up this is tom healy and as always i am joined by my co-host jeffrey ryan jeff we love these types of matches and stories this is going to be a fun one but first how the hell are you doing we always remember our first time, man, and this was a special one. So, you know, we heard the fans, they wanted more ECW, and so that's exactly what we're doing. And so I'm doing good. I'm looking forward to, you know, giving the fans what they want and hearing a little bit more about this. So we had so much fun with Shane last time. We are just pumped to have him back and do this again. So with that, we'll get into the good stuff. But first, subscribe to The Payoff. Give us those five stars. Spread the word about the show. We say it all the time. We, you know, that's how we are successful. We want to see those stars going up. You know, it's, it's exciting for us to see that happening. So you can always find The Payoff on Twitter, Instagram, Facebook. It's just at PayoffPod. You can find us on Patreon, just that one tier, payoffpatreon.com, bringing you all kinds of good content, our after show. Love seeing the comments on that all the time. So feel free to check us out there, just payoffpatreon.com. Tom, what else do you got for those listening? Yeah, make sure to check us out on Patreon. Again, it's one tier. We just throw a bunch of stuff in there. It's all listed there. And then we're constantly adding more stuff, current product, past stuff, after shows, bonus shows, show transcripts, you name it. So excited to see that keep growing. And we're certainly really proud of that. And as always, my friendly reminder, if you haven't already done so, go back in the archives, check out some of those past episodes. We've got some just great matches, great moments, great interviews in there. So make sure to hit download on those and, and check them all out. Now, Jeff, as always, walk us through how we do things here on the payoff. Yeah. You know, just that brief rundown, quick refresher who might need it. We are the first podcast ever to give you a weekly deep dive into a match every Monday. 
And each episode has those three parts. It's just the build, the payoff, the aftermath. We talk about what happened before the match. We talk about the match or just the career with our special guest superstar legend. And then we talk about what happened after the match. We share a few reviews, some write-ups, what happened in the immediate aftermath. And then we share our payoff scores. So Tom, Lots of good stuff happening. Fans enjoy it. We enjoy it. Why did you want to talk about this match? Yeah, so like I said, this is my first ever ECW show that I attended live. It was the third ECW pay-per-view. It was November to Remember, which was their signature WrestleMania or Starcade, if you will. So it was a big deal. It was exciting. As you can probably imagine, for those of you that didn't attend an ECW show, it was just a different vibe, man. So it was really cool to go to this show, to just people watch and, and be a part of the ECW experience, if you will. Now, interestingly enough, Jeff and I had this idea for the podcast, what it would be, you know, and of course, when you're sketching things out, you don't know how it's going to actually play out in reality, but we thought it sounded like a good idea. And prior to us launching the podcast, you know, we were reaching out to different wrestlers and saying, Hey, what do you think of this concept? And, you know, would you be willing to be a guest on the show? And what matches would you want to talk about? And one guy that I ran into was Shane Douglas, actually in Las Vegas at StarCast 2. And I said, Hey, you know, first ECW show was November to remember 97. What do you think about doing a deep dive into that match? Well, for those that know Shane, he's a talker, man. He just starts talking about and I don't want to spoil the interview, but he starts talking about what was going on behind the scenes. And he talks about the promotion of the show and how him and Bam Bam had to, you know, scurry away to try and map out the match because everyone's bugging. I mean, he starts getting into all this stuff and I'm sitting there, you know, the fan in me is just like, oh my God, this is incredible. And so I think more than anything else, that was the moment where, you know, I was like, okay, we're on to something here. This is a podcast, right? Just because he had all this incredible insight that maybe wouldn't come up in a traditional interview, right? You know, it's like on most interviews, people talk about, oh, this is how I got started in the business and this is where I trained and these are some of my favorite matches and moments. But to really do a deep dive into, okay, like, the afternoon of this show that you promoted, what's going on? Where are you? What are you doing? You know, what are you doing during the show? What was your reaction to walking out in your home crowd? Did you know a lot of people there? And it's just really interesting and different. So this conversation with Shane was kind of that aha moment of, okay, this concept is going to work because we both think it's interesting and we're fans. So again, that conversation really made us excited about what we were doing in this deep dive format. So that's a reason I'm really excited about it. And Jeff, I'm a sucker for a good homecoming, right? Like I like the home crowd feel. And so Shane coming home in Pittsburgh, a few miles from where he grew up, he's promoting the show, he's handing out flyers, he's managing the ticket sales. I just thought this was so fun. So as you can tell, I'm really excited for this one. What do you find interesting about this? And why did you want to do this match? Yeah, you know, this this one was a little more your choice than mine just in regards to this individual match because, you know, you make no secret, you're the ECW mark among the two of us. But I've enjoyed everything ECW that, that we've spent time watching. You know, I obviously saw the clips over the years, but I was excited to kind of dig into this one myself too and do the research. So, you know, of course, none of us can go back and, and rewatch on that consistent weekly basis, you know, when it was happening live. But I really, after digging into this one and kind 
kind of checking it out a little bit. I was excited. You know, just one of those. I love talking wrestling and so do you. And so not a Hall of Fame match, but just kind of cool little stories happening. Just there was a lot of different things. So with that being said, let's get to the build. Oh, it's time for the build. All right, here we are with the build. It's ECW November to Remember 1997. This is going to take place on November 30th, 1997. We're in Manaka, PA, which is just outside of Pittsburgh, where Shane Douglas grew up. And the venue is the Golden Dome. Now, the crowd that night, over 4,000 in attendance. Okay. Keep in mind that previous to this, the all-time attendance record for ECW was 2,200. So they more than doubled the all-time attendance record and would obviously do the biggest house in terms of ticket sales, over $100,000, and then tack on another 43,000 in merchandise sales. So this is just a massive success for the company in a new market, really, you know, as they were starting to expand their footprint in you know, New York and Pittsburgh. And not long after this, they'd find their way down to Florida for pay-per-views. So the company's growing. Now, for perspective, a good ECW buy rate, and again, this was their third pay-per-view, was about 20% of what a solid WCW or WWF show would do. So, you know, again, you're, you're probably looking at a quarter of the buys, maybe a quarter of the attendance, probably a quarter of the gate is what these ECW shows were doing compared to a WCW or WWF in late 97, which again, late 97, WCW's firing on all cylinders. They're building to the big Hogan sting match that they've had in the works for over a year. WWF, you just had the Montreal screw job take place earlier this month. So Brett's leaving. Mr. McMahon's now a character. You know, we're going to get this big Steve Austin push, the Attitude Era is starting to hum and ho. So it's, it's a, a really interesting time in the business for all three companies. And, you know, really all three were, were experiencing significant success. So people talk about the quote unquote height of the business. Hey, things are doing well right now, but for you to have three, what I would say, national promotions that were all doing great stuff at the time, that's what late 97 and, and into 98 really was. So hugely successful show in terms of the box office, in terms of the metrics, and this is the third ECW pay-per-view. The show, and I know we're going to get more into this, it was... I'd say reviewed as being a mediocre show, right? I don't think anyone said, hey, this was the best ECW pay-per-view or one of the best wrestling pay-per-views of the year. I think people looked at it and said, yeah, it was a solid show. It wasn't bad. It wasn't great. I thought that overall it was probably better than it was reviewed. And again, I could be biased. I was there. I had a great time. I remember it being an awesome atmosphere. And, you know, the big thing, and I, and I say this a lot on this podcast, but it was just a different presentation. You know, I mean, WWF, WCW kind of felt the same, right? I mean, they were both doing great stuff, but, you know, they're big wrestling promotions in arenas. And so this just had such a different feel to it. Some fun stuff on the undercard. And I'll just share with you the, the two bigger matches that led into the main event, one of which was RVD and Tommy Dreamer. They went to a no contest match and a flag match. And then the other semi-main event was Sabu and Sandman in a tables ladders match. They went about 21 minutes and just beat the hell out of each other. You know, Keller would report that 
the pay-per-view would solidify its reputation as being quote-unquote garbage wrestling with athleticism based around unhinged brawling, but not world-class skills. Maybe that's fair, maybe it's not, but again, it's a different product, different presentation. I dug it. And then obviously the reason we're here for this show, the main event, Shane Douglas looking to get the ECW World Heavyweight Championship back from Bam Bam Bigelow. And that would be the main event, again, what this, this entire card was surrounded with. So let's talk a little bit about what's going on in the business. You know, Vince McMahon and, and Paul Heyman are starting to work together, right? And it's, it's interesting because the boys didn't know about this. And I don't know how many people internally at WWF or ECW really knew about this strange little relationship that they had. But there's some talent being shared back and forth. There's some invasion angles taking place on both shows. The WWF lighting crew, interestingly enough, did the lighting for this show. And WWF aired some ads for this show on their programming. I think the the thought was that ECW was buying those ads when in reality, Vince was giving them to ECW. So they got some publicity out and, you know, we're spreading the word through this unique little partnership. Now, ticket sales, like I said, big gate, a lot of tickets turn people away. What I found interesting, Jeff, was the highest price ticket for this show was actually $100. Now, granted, you're in the first couple rows, but it just seemed like a lot to me. Again, we're talking 1997 ECW. So, you know, the, the demand was definitely there for a higher price ticket. And they did a great job with this. Another thing I came across in my research was, uh, if you remember, ECW and WCW were, you know, there were so many legal disputes going on at this time. It was tough to keep track, right? It was like there was the Razor Ramon, Diesel, Scott Hall, Kevin Nash lawsuit. There was ECW upset that WCW was poaching their talents. I mean, it was just a bunch of law lawsuits at this time, a lot lot of times they would settle them in really like weird ways. And so you'll remember later on when like Taz was involved in beating Mike Awesome because Mike Awesome had jumped at WCW and like they they just like lend talents and and figure out these unconventional ways to settle these, these lawsuits, if you will. But this one in particular, there was speculation that Chris Benoit and possibly even Eddie Guerrero might be involved in ECW at this time as settlement for one of the lawsuits that was floating around. But I thought it would have been a really interesting show had one or both of them been on it and probably worked a hell of a match or matches. And then the last thing I mentioned, Jeff, that, you know, we're on the build to this Sting-Hogan Starcade 97 match. I came across a uh, conversation that Eric Bischoff had on uh, Prodigy and he was doing one of those, you know, kind of ask me anything type chats. And, you know, someone said, well, you know, Sting's been out of the ring for a year now. How's he going to look in his first match back against Hulk Hogan? And, and Bischoff would say, and I quote, I have every confidence the match was Sting and Hogan is going to be everything and more than people expect. Sting is in great shape and has been working out hard. He's obviously an experienced wrestler who knows what he will have to do before he steps into the ring in December. Now, Jeff, I share this because literally the opposite happened. <laughs> he showed up right. not in ring shape. <laughs> he was pale. And this is something that Bischoff shared a number of times on his podcast. But it was just funny to see that, yeah, that didn't happen at all. <laughs> so hard to believe a wrestling promoter would embellish. But I thought that was fun. So what? Uh, what? Yeah, I know, right? So a lot going on in the business. And again, I just find it fascinating that November 30th, 1997, this show takes place. We're sandwiched between the Montreal Screw job, arguably the biggest 
thing to ever happen in wrestling history, right? Biggest story or certainly one of them. And then this Hogan Sting matchup, which was kind of the height of WCW, biggest pay-per-view of all time for them. And we're easing into the Austin era. We've got this DX thing with the attitude era. I mean, it's just insane. And I don't know how much we knew at the time what we were experiencing, right? Like sometimes you don't just sit back and go, wow, this is an incredible era in wrestling. But it's fun looking back all these years later at just how much was going on. And this was all pre-internet. So, you know, people were finding this stuff in weird ways. You know, it wasn't like everyone was seeing it on Twitter and seeing the highlights. And I, part of me wonders if this era happened now, would wrestling have been even bigger? Or maybe it wasn't because there's just so much more content that's out there now because of the internet. So who knows, but really fun stuff. Now from a storyline standpoint, Jeff, how do we get to Shane Douglas, Bam Bam Bigelow, November to remember 97 in Shane's hometown? Yeah, the the biggest rivalry here at the time in ECW was Bam Bam Bigelow and Shane Douglas. And this match was for the ECW World Heavyweight title. A little bit of back and forth with the belt, but we'll get into that. So November to remember, obviously taking place in November. The year was 1997. And then throughout most of that year, a name that we've brought up before, Rick Rude had actually been pestering, bothering, been the thorn in the side of Shane Douglas and Francine. To discuss this angle a little bit more, we're going to get into it even more. So Douglas won the title in August, and then he lost it to Bam Bam in October. And so Rick Rude being like I said, the pain that he was, there were some promos where he was telling everyone that after Douglas won the title, that he had someone that he wanted to take on Douglas and take the belt from him. So a little bit of mystery to it. Didn't know kind of what was happening. So a few things to keep in mind here is this is playing out for starters that in the run up to this, Shane and Bam Bam, and this is the October run-up before Bam Bam won, that Shane and Bam Bam were actually tag partners against Sabu and RVD just on hardcore TV a lot. They had you know some different tag matches throughout the lead-up to that. And so when Bam Bam was revealed as the challenger, it was kind of a big deal. There was also, you know, some of us might be familiar, we've briefly talked about like Triple Threat, which was their stable that Douglas had put together. Initially, that was his, the genesis for the group was the answer to the Four Horsemen. And so the initial group was Shane, Dean Malenko, and Chris Benoit had some different members and had actually reformed at this time. You had Shane Douglas, Chris Candido, and Brian Lee, and Bam Bam actually joined later. So they already had some connections. And so in late October, though, this is when Bam Bam was revealed to be the one taking on Douglas. And so that's why it was a little bit surprising at the time because of just the connection that they had had and they had been working together. So this was, like I said, Bam Bam won the title. He actually beat Shane pretty quick. It was like a six-minute match, you know, kind of impromptu. And it was for the title. I can't imagine nowadays having an impromptu six-minute match for the, like, you know, Brock comes out and does that. Like, it's not going to happen. But had that, and so Bam Bam now has the title. Tom has touched on it a little bit, but the build for the rematch was really centered around Shane Douglas, who he was a heel. We can't forget that either. But him trying to win back his ECW title or the ECW title. And a big part of that was being in the hometown his hometown of, of Pittsburgh. And the arena is about 40, 45 minutes outside of the city, but it was still like Tom already alluded to a lot happening with him 
even as a heel trying to get this over. So just weird stuff, but you know, a lot, a lot of back and forth. So getting even weirder here and kind of just a, a sidebar to the build that got to talk about Rick Rude on this one. He was a big part of the story because he was the one that had been pushing, you know, who's the mystery opponent going to be and all this other stuff. And so prior to this match though, actually happening in November, he just left ECW and really WWF at this point. So he just left. And so try and follow this timeline with me because like I said, it's just a little odd. So that's summer, August, you know, early August. And like, sharing of kind of talent he was on wwf with the not yet called the generation x team that was the generation x so it was sean triple h china and so he would come out with them he never had any kind of matches but he would always be ringside he would he would always be there Fast forward to a little bit, busy November, but early November, the Montreal screw job happened at Survivor Series. Everything that I could kind of find is that Rick Rude was actually in the locker room with Brett when him and Vince got into it. And so somehow though, at this time, Rick Rude was, he was pay per appearance. He, he didn't have a full contract with ECW. He didn't have a full contract with WWF. He just, you know, he'd be there and he'd get paid for when he showed up. So he didn't like what happened with the screw job, was not a fan of any of that. And so contacted Eric Bischoff, left for WCW. So it was kind of odd here. And so many of the write-ups deal with his facial hair because it was the giveaway here. And so here's how this played out. So that was November 9th was the screw job. On November 17th, one of the few people we can say, Rude was on both WCW and WWF. And so how it played out was that it's aired earlier and it aired live, but Rude, who just had a mustache, I know this is weird, but we're going down this road because this is what we bring you. Only a mustache was on a live Nitro episode. And so he really went off. The promo was kind of interesting. It is fun to just kind of go back and check out. He went off on Vince, went off on Sean, DX, the WWF. He caught you know, them the Titanic. It kind of had a two-play there because one – he was discussing, you know, the Titanic. We all know the ship went down. But then also their kind of parent company of WWF at the time was Titan Sports. And so it was a little bit of a play on words there too. Good on him. But so a mustached Rick Rude shows up on the live Nitro. And then about an hour or so later on Raw, which had actually, it was tape, not tape delayed, but literally tape a week prior, Rude had a full beard and was on the show. And so fans knew that something was up. And so you, you might have heard that story a little bit, but this is how it played a factor in this story, which was interesting because he was the one that tried to set this match up. And so this is where we were, we were at with this. So you got full beard on raw tape, which, you know, not a thing after he shows up live with a mustache. So Shane and Bam Bam, this one came about pretty quick after the challenge and being revealed that Bam Bam was the person that was going to be the one to try and, you know, challenge him for the belt. And then just some weird stuff with Rick Rude. And so the build, just things happening, you know, it was kind of exciting just kind of seeing this different stuff. And if you remember, and some of us, you know, are old enough, like when that happened, it was a big deal, like the Rude stuff and kind of what was going on. And so him himself probably, you know, didn't add to the buy rate or anything of the pay-per-view, but just a lot happening with the build. So Tom, any other final thoughts? Yeah, wasn't there a write-up in the newspaper? You went and saw the Titanic like 40 times, was it? Me? Probably my 
ex-girlfriend probably had me watch it that many times if we were counting. Yeah. <laughs> so the Rick Rude stuff's funny because yeah, he was just kind of floating around to different promotions. He couldn't work. I mean, it was just odd, but I think everyone probably said, yeah, the guy's a great talker and legend in the business. And yeah, so he'd make these like random ECW appearances and he was doing like the DX stuff. And uh, it was just, just kind of fun. You know, to me, Rick Rude's probably one of the most underrated guys in the history of the business, you know, cut the music just a great line I think maybe one of the top five or ten talkers ever in the business Uh, he's just one of those guys he probably doesn't get enough credit for how good he was and how far ahead of his time he was his stuff still holds up today and is fantastic and then you throw Bobby Heenan into the equation and it's just magic I would have loved to have seen him have a heel world title run but you know they just didn't really give heels the title back then too much but you know him beating the warrior maybe and having a run would have been fun yeah so we get Rick Rude in the build we we got a Titanic reference but you know Shane Douglas you know he's a heel right and everywhere except Pittsburgh. It was kind of like the hearts in in Canada, right? Where Shane Douglas is doing these promos leading up to the pay-per-view where he's ripping the fans in Philadelphia and New York and then putting over the fans in Pittsburgh just to make sure you get that hometown cheer. But it's just kind of fun. You know, again, I, Jeff, you mentioned there, there really wasn't like a ton of build to this match. I mean, I think they just relied on, hey, it's Bam Bam destroyed him, so Shane can't beat him, and we're going to do this underdog story with the hometown guy. So simple, but I, I think it was effective. And like I said, this is my first ECW show. So I'm 13 years old, okay? ECW, it's a pretty wild environment. You know, everyone's drunk. I mean, the <laughs> the fans are insane. You know, we're on this like set of bleachers that I thought was going to fall over. <laughs> I mean, it was fun. And so uh, very fond memories of this show. Now, if you want to watch the match along with Shane, the timestamp on the WWE network of ECW November to remember 97 is the two minute and 12 mark. So when we come back from break and you hear the ding, 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 if you want to watch it. It's when Shane's walking out to the ring. It's the 212 mark of November, remember 97. So great interview. Awesome match. I think you're going to really enjoy it. And with that being said, it's time for the payoff. Oh, it's time for the payoff. All right, November to remember, 97, the Golden Dome of Manaka, PA. This match is near and dear to my heart, Shane, because I was in attendance as a 13-year-old, my first ever ECW show. So the franchise, welcome to the show, and I can't wait to watch this match with you. Uh, it's great to be back. And, you know, just, you know, first of all, just a little side note, you know, seeing Bam Bam, seeing Scott, every time I, I watch stuff of his, like, especially this, because to me, his stuff in ECW was the best stuff he had done. You know, just seeing him alive, he was so vibrant. And to think that he's been gone so long is just amazing. Uh, Francine down there at the bottom, you can see he's on crutches. She had broken her hip a couple of weeks before this. Bam, him had pressed her over his head and, and threw her, and she ended up breaking her hip. She had a broken hip here. So when you were walking down to the ring, it just looked like your mind was racing more than it was during a normal entrance. Do you remember what you were thinking as yes. you were walking out? Okay, let's hear it. Well, it was an awkward ECW arena. It was so easy because it's a stone cold heel. But now the CCBC Golden Dome is six, seven miles from my house. So most of those people in that building I know, most of the people in that building were neighbors, friends, relatives. 
And at that time, this ECW had now made it. You know, by 97, ECW was a pretty hot commodity. And this was the first time that we'd ever had a 5,000-plus seat venue, the first time we'd ever done a six-figure gate. It was a big pay-per-view for us. November, remember, was sort of our WrestleMania. And because of all those things, plus, like I had mentioned to you previously, I was promoting this show. Every five, ten minutes, somebody's coming and telling me, they need, we need more hot dogs, we need more ice, we're out of this, we're out of that. So there was a million things on my head, but as I'm walking to the ring, the biggest thing was, I'm thinking to myself, damn, I, I got to deliver. I can't go out here and shit the bed, I've got to deliver. Thankfully, I had somebody like Scott to work with that was you know, incredibly professional. He had beaten me lickety-split a month before this in, in New York at Elks Lodge. And just watching him move, you know, he, he was so fluid. I mean, he was fantastic throughout his career, but he did some awesome stuff in ECW. Yeah. The one thing that most fans would, would be surprised at is he's a big teddy bear. He was just the sweetest guy if he was your friend. And, you know, I just think, he, like all of us, he, he just wanted the respect that he was due and, and certainly earned. But, you know, when you look at him in, in that push, you know, you're like at the beginning of the match where we're standing face-to-face looking at him, thinking, man, this bastard could tear me in half if he wanted to. You know, he's just such a big monster. And, but, you know, in our business, you can see with, with what he's doing in this match, he knows his job is to get the champion over, to change the belt and get the champion over. It's not to make himself look good to make his opponent look good and he does that this entire time everything he's doing right now is setting up towards that ultimate finish so you mentioned a little bit earlier but explain to the listeners what were your responsibilities behind the scenes related to the building and the promotion because it was in the pittsburgh market well, we had started earlier that year. We had the first show in Pittsburgh. I've been telling Paul for years that we had to get into the Pittsburgh market because Pittsburgh is such an incredible wrestling market. And Cody Michaels had gotten the TV on, uh, uh, I think it was the WB or? It was, du- it was WB. It was Saturday nights. I think it was like 2 o'clock in the morning. Okay. So then, you know, we were the ones that got that started. We had gone to WB and said, actually, Cody Michaels did most of it. I just came in and signed the paperwork after but he had gotten everything set up. And then Easter Sunday, we had the very first show in this building and drew close to 800 people You know, on an Easter Sunday. It was a cold, dreary spring day in Pittsburgh. And Paul, being Paul, had held the doors for like an hour and a half. They were supposed to be open at a certain time. He held them for like an hour and a half. And when I found that out, I blew a gasket, you know, because a lot of these people out there were my friends and family. And But they came in, and they were soaking wet and came in and just gave an incredible energy, you know, on a holiday and all of that. Then we came back shortly after that for the second. I think this was the fifth show, each one built. So we went from the 800 to 15, 1600 to 2300. And then, you know, this uh, the, thing for, the problem for ECW being that we weren't a huge conglomerate like a WWE or, or WCW was we didn't have... Uh, perfect. Look at that. Look at the execution on that chin lock. Perfect. No loose air around it. And, you know, and you can see squeezing me pretty good. My face looks like ready to pop off. But we didn't have any way to gauge and say, how many tickets are sold? Do we have to do more promotion? You know, we were sort of flying blind. And, you know, we could get sort of like a loose count through Ticketmaster, 
but a lot of tickets got sold. I don't know if you remember this or not, being as young as you were. We had people working at the box office here at the Golden Dome, too. So we were selling tickets live physically. We had a couple pharmacies around the Beaver County area that were selling the tickets. So we really didn't know at any specific moment how many tickets we have sold. God, the strength. Look at them, 253 pounds, and we're 10, 15 minutes into the match. And he catches me from 12 feet in the air and barely moves him. But, you know, so we didn't have any way to gauge. The, the, the day of the show, if you remember, there were throngs of people around the Golden Dome. The, you know, the 5,000 space parking lot was jam-packed. And when I pulled up to the building 2, 3 o'clock in the afternoon, I couldn't believe how packed it was. And, and it's really hard to, like, when people were in a building, like a venue like this, I can look and say, okay, there's, a, you know, this many to this many people. But when they're out in the parking lot milling around and that day, I remember there being a line of people five, six wide that completely encircled the Golden Dome. And then the line went up the stairs into the parking lot and across the parking lot. I knew it was more than the building could hold. The problem was because we had no idea that many people were going to show up. We could have booked in like a CCBC has other places that we could have rented and done like a closed circuit television. So we, we ended up turning around 23, 24, 2,500 people away because we didn't have the ability to gauge. And so you had shared with me previously that you and Bam Bam were trying to go over the match before and you kept getting pulled away. What, what exactly happened? Well, again, you know, being the promoter of the show, we had control of the uh, concession stand. And literally every two, three minutes, somebody would come and say, hey, we're out of hot dogs or we need more ice. An usher would come and say somebody's seat wasn't where it was supposed to be. There, was, there weren't enough seats or whatever. We also had some people down close. If you look closely, I think the screen right, we had a handicapped area, people in wheelchairs and things. You know, so we, there was an awful lot of things going on. Like for instance, if somebody had bought a ticket for handicapped, if there wasn't a space for them, you couldn't just say, hey, go roll up there in, this, in the stands someplace. So all of these things were being brought to me. And Cody Michaels, my co-promoter, every time Bammer and I would sit down to talk over the match, he would see these people coming with these things. And he finally said, hey, why don't you and Scott get out of here? I'll take care of everything. So he took on the burden of all of that. And Sabu had brought his Winnebago. Sabu didn't like staying in hotels. So he would, you know, he had a really nice Winnebago. And he came and, you know, realized what was going on. And he told me and Scott, he said, why don't you guys get out of here and go out to the Winnebago? So we did. We went out to the Winnebago and we sat there and started talking. When we went and when we left to go out to the Winnebago, people were coming in. The building wasn't yet packed. You know, there was a strong, steady stream of people coming in. And we were out there for, I don't know, an hour, hour and a half. My recollection of that was we didn't talk much about the match. We just sat out there and bullshitted, you know, about the business and, you know, just different stories, how his kids were doing, that kind of thing. And he trusted me and I trusted him. So we, we didn't worry about the match. We knew the template for the match was, was going to be Vader Flair. And when it came time to come back in, I walked in the back door and Paul Heyman came over and gave me a barrel and picked me up and he gave me a great big kiss on the cheek. And I said, what was that for? And he said, did you see it out there? And his, you know, his eyes were wide open. Did you see it out there? So I walked up to the top of the stairs where the TV cameras were set up and I looked out. And all I remember is it looked like well, there were beach balls being batted around, but it looked like ants in a bowl. Like it just looked like a bowl of ants that was just quivering. And of course, the ring in the middle. So I knew we had the people. That was the first half of the battle. The second half was now delivering the goods. 
So that added pressure. You know, now we've got this sold out house, the, the largest house in ECW history at this point. And again, me being the hometown guy, I'm in the main event. So if Bammer and I would have gone out there and shit the bed, you know, we could have killed that town. I mean, look at his strength is just astounding. Yeah, you're 250. Jeez. Yeah, yeah. And he's just the second ago there, you know, you can see he picks me up and almost loses me because he throws me up so so easily, you know, readjusts me and, you know, picks me up again and then throws me back up in the air again. Here it is right here. See the, he's barely breathing. It's amazing for a guy that size that he's not just sucking wind right now. I mean, the fact he got a good match out of Lawrence Taylor is all you need to know about the guy. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, absolutely. All right. So walk me through this year. So this is 1997. In yes. April, you do Barely Legal. At that point, did you know this event in Pittsburgh was going to happen and be on pay-per-view? Or no. was it at that point you threw the Hail Mary and it was, let's get through this and we'll see what the hell happens? Yeah. I, I can't remember when during the year I found out that we were getting November to remember in Pittsburgh. I think it was shortly before the New York show the month before. So when Paul was feeding me the finish, when he wanted Bammer, to, rude to bring Bammer out to be the person who beats me in, you know, 30 seconds. It was shortly before that. And I knew as soon as he did, as soon as he called that finish, I knew what he was doing, bring me back. But really, as a babyface, you know, I, I, in this town, the fans, it didn't matter what I did. I could cut the most scathing promo. I could have gone out and called the Steelers bums, whatever. Pittsburgh being the wrestling town, I was you not know, taking anything away away from Larry Zabisco, but I was the first world champion from Pittsburgh since Bruno San Martino that had a connection to the audience. Awesome. You know, it, it, yeah, it astounds me watching because of the size. And to this day, it's the biggest pop I've ever had in my career. And what a panorama. See, they should have done that kind of shots more. Yeah, I mean, they just didn't have the production right. wherewithal at that point. Is this the best night of your career? Yes. I was at the peak of my game. I was in the best shape of my career. I had Bammer to work with, you know, in front of that crowd. I knew, like, when we went out to Sabu's uh, Winnebago, like, I knew that Scott and I didn't have to sit out there and talk about the match. I knew he was going to deliver the goods. And mine was really just reacting off of him. One of the little told stories of this match is that in the days following this match, Bammer and I were both in the hospital. Bammer, what most people didn't know and wasn't public and very few people in the business knew was Bammer was a diabetic and would have on and off issues with his kidneys as a result of that. After this match, he was pissing blood. And when, I don't know if he's done it yet, I think it's towards the end, where he hits me with a crutch. And yeah. you know, he swung the crutch so fast and snapped the crutch and actually hit my elbow and broke a bone in my elbow that I needed surgery on. So, you know, after this biggest match in ECW history, the two of us are in like Apollo Creed and Rocky in the hospital afterwards, you know. <laughs> so tell me about Barely Legal. What was the mood like before? I know, you know, Heyman gives that famous speech. Just tell me what was going through your mind that night. Well, you know, for me, it was just another night at work. I mean, it was a big deal. You know, we, you know, pay-per-view for us was like the Nirvana land, you know, it's utopia. We could only dream about it before that. But Funk and I both had the most experience in Bammer. You know, we all were, were well-versed at pay-per-views. But the rest of the dressing room, I wrestled Pitbull Anthony Durante at that show. And he and Francine were both, like, Franny was ready to vomit. I mean, she, as we got closer and closer to bell time, she was getting more and more. And I kept trying to calm them down 
So just, just, you know, follow my lead, listen to me. We've done this a million times. Don't worry about the cameras. Just, you know, we're in the ECW arena. And right before we went to the curtain, I look over to Anthony and he's sweating buckets. Like he's nervous. And he kept saying, Shane, what's the finish? What's the finish? I forgot. I forgot. I forgot. And then Franny started, oh my God, I'm going to throw up. I'm going to vomit. And they started making me nervous, you know, because I mean, I've been on a million pay-per-views before that. But now I'm thinking like, holy smokes, my sidekick is going to go blank out there. And the guy I'm wrestling who I was having great matches with at that time, you know, he, he trusted me and he was so strong, Anthony Durante. Uh, he would pick me up like a sack of potatoes. Those bigger guys I always worked better off of because they were so strong they could, you know, shut the big mouth up, right? And, you know, all you had to do was just play around that. And, you know, Bam Bam, hey, look at them. I mean, we're 20 minutes into this match in that hot building, and he's picking me up like I'm 20 pounds and still not breathing hard. <laughs> it's, it's amazing. I'm, you know, I'm, I'm sucking wind at this point. He beat the shit the out of you, didn't he? Oh, yeah. Yeah. At one point, I don't know if the camera catches it. My brother, who out of all 5,000 people in the building that night, my brother would be the last person you would pick to be my brother. He's, you know, much smaller stature, much leaner features, darker hair. We don't look anything like brothers. Well, he got so wound up at this because Bam Bam was just beating the snot out of me. He jumps over the railing. No way. Yeah, he jumps over the railing. And luckily, security stopped him. I told him, I said, you know, Scott would have never guessed you to be my brother. And he's got me busted open. If he had seen my brother coming at him, he'd have knocked his head off and had right to do that. But the whole psychology, like I said, was based off of the Vader Flair 90 match. And it's the hometown guy. He had beaten me so easily the month before. All we had to do was set up the story that I can't beat this guy. No matter what I do to him, he just chops me down. No matter what I throw at him, it just bounces off of him. And I'm not wrestling any different than I do as a heel. But being the hometown guy, the fans are with me. And now you can see that the, the crowd's beginning to sense, maybe I'm going to lose this match again. Maybe Bam Bam's going to be the champion. And once you get that in place, the rest is semantics. How'd you get the and nickname, he, the franchise? Watch, here's where Bam Bam oh, comes. Oh, jeez. Yeah. Now, he throws me 15 feet in the aisle. Watch, he comes back to the hard cam. Those two guys in the white shirts, by the way, are right there. students of mine. But – you know, the franchise name came, I first went, actually went there and Eddie Gilbert was still booking. And I had quit the business before as I'd walked away in disgust prior to 93 after my run with Steamboat because uh, the whole thing with Dos Ombres and dropping the belt and everything, I had to have shoulder surgery. And I said to them, you know, just wait two or three weeks till I come back and we'll do it right. And they didn't. And they made it a point to try to make me look bad out of the tube because he had surgery on my elbow or on my shoulder and I'd walked away in disgust and when Eddie Gilbert called me and offered me to come in I loved Eddie Eddie gave me my break in the business but you know it was like you know like an alcoholic wanting to stay out of a bar I didn't want to be back near the business and just kept saying no and he kept kept calling four or five six times and each time he'd sweeten the pot and he finally gave me the option to be the lead heel and I'd always said before I left the business that I always wanted to learn every aspect of my business. And back then, blonde hair, blue-eyed guys weren't heels. So when he offered me the lead heel rule, that, that intrigued me. And I started in, and it was not quite a month, maybe a month and a half, 
And we were at a production meeting one day and Eddie said, I'll be right back. And he got up and walked out and never came back. And an hour or two went by. His brother, Doug, was still there. And here's Franny, you know, getting ready to, now, now you watch, he swings right for her head. Today, they would swing over her head, right? Yeah. And he swings at her head because he told her, if you don't duck, oh my God. you know, he'd have killed her. But, you know, Franny was, was a pro and, oh, yeah, it was just, you know, at this point, I'm thinking, like, how much more is going to take? So anyway, Eddie Gilbert leaves. Paul Heyman gets announced as, as the new booker. And Eddie had given me the, the moniker, the fabulous one, you know, being from Memphis. You know, I was never a big fan of Memphis wrestling. And that didn't have legs to it to me. And he had me going to the ring to Are You Gonna Go My Way by Lenny Kravitz, a song I love, but I, you know, it wasn't right for me. And Paul, once he took over the book, came to me. And this was in the spring of 93 was when the NFL started declaring one player per team as the franchise team player. Got it. So Paul came to me and said, I, I want to call you the franchise. But what he had envisioned was me going to the ring each night wearing, you know, Lemieux's jersey or Dan Marino's jersey or LT's jersey or whatever. And I said to him, well, if you, and you want this guy to be a heel? And he said, yes. And I said, well, he would never wear somebody else's jersey. Wouldn't he expect them to wear his? And that's when Paul knew I, had, I understood the character. And the only, the only direction he ever gave me was, you're the captain of the football team who steals everybody's girlfriend and sleeps with them. And <laughs> I, said, well, I, I, can, I know that guy. <laughs> so I can, <laughs> had a little experience in that department. So, yeah, it really became one of those things that just worked perfectly. And it was the first time in my career that I actually had something to focus my attention on as a character. It wasn't just go out there and be a baby face and hit the mat or be a bad guy and do this and piss everybody off. It gave me a very clear vision of what a franchise needs to be. He believes he's better than everybody else. He's damn good. He's not as good as he believes he is. And his mouth writes checks that his ass can't cash. But it doesn't mean that every time he's going to not cash that check. You know, the one thing I hate is when somebody plays a heel that isn't quite as good as the baby face. He's not quite as strong as the, as the baby face. He's not as good looking as the baby face. He ain't as cool as the baby face. To me, that, why be pissed off? The guy that you want to be pissed off at is the guy who's better looking than everybody, tougher than everybody, tells everybody how good he is, rubs their nose in it, and God damn it, still wins. That's somebody to be disliked. And here comes his pop. Look at that. Yeah, incredible. That's Pittsburgh supporting its hometown guy. That's not Shane Douglas. That's, that's I mean, you know, obviously it's supporting me, but I mean, it, that's the Pittsburgh sports town. But everything was right. You know, all of the markers were ready for this. You know, we had the triple threat going so hard at one point, controlling all the belts. And then Paul came in with a brilliant idea of having Brood, who, who announced when he came in that he was there to fuck with the franchise. You know, my cut the fucking music was a take on his cut the music. Mm -hmm. So there were so many parallels in all this. And, and that's what a great booker does. A great storyline wraps in and develops into a story that gets the viewer, those people sitting back there, you, me, sitting at the edge of the table, at the edge of the seat and saying, well, I know he's a big mouth, but Rude screwed him. It gives people on both sides. Just like I was always one of those fans that loved heels when I was a kid. There are some that despise it, but that gives everybody something to like about it, right? You know, you can like the guy, you can hate the guy. If you hate me, you're loving Bam Bam. If you hate Bam Bam, you're loving me, but you're getting a great performance no matter which way you cut it. And 
that's what I think is one of the big things that's missing from wrestling today. When, you know, I hear AEW and, and you know, a guy named Tony Khan says he's going to be the booker. I'm sure he's a brilliant guy, but I would say he's no more qualified to be a booker than I am to be the head coach of the Jacksonville Jaguars. I mean, I've watched football all my life, right? I mean, how are going to be? So these nuances and all the things we talked about in this match, and we can go through and watch a million of these matches. Those are things that you can't sit in the back and say, okay, Scott, when this happens, do this. And when that happens, when you do this, I'll do this. Because now you're not performing. You're trying to remember and regurgitate. You could see in that whole time, Scott's push looks like he's going in there to beat my ass and win that match. My job is to try to survive this beast from the East and try to somehow pull out a win out of this. No matter what I do to him, it bounces right off of him. And so the story's there. It's intrinsic. Now all we have to do is play our characters. And today, what you get is everybody going, okay, when, when Scott, when you do this, I'm going to do this. And then Francine comes in and does this, and this will happen. And that's not performing. You're just vomiting up and regurgitating what you talked about. And like I always tell people, what happens if we'd have gone out there and started this match, this uber important match, the biggest match in ECW's history at this point, and pay-per-view, what would have happened if that audience wasn't buying what we were giving them? Do we just keep delivering and just keep doing what we're doing and just say, hell with it, that's what we've set up? Or do we audible and try something else? Well, I know, you know, me and Scott come from the old school. Our job is to audible and come up. And if that doesn't work, audible again and come up with something until that crowd gets to that reaction point. Well, that's what I was going to ask you is if you have a 50 different sequences in a row all mapped out, you're not listening to the fans. Exactly. And you, if you watch closely, and maybe it's just not, I've got a trained eye after all these years. When I watch the WWE or Ring of Honor or TNA today or, you know, 90% of the independents, everybody's working hard. I'm not slighting anybody for saying they're lazy or anything like that. You know, if anything, the WWE guys, I think, are working way, way harder than they have to. But when you watch them, if you look at their face, you can tell they're trying to remember something. They're not just allowing themselves to, to live in the moment. And if you know your character in this match, especially, you know, the no, November, November to remember 97, I didn't expect to get that much babyface reaction. You know, because remember, up to this point, I'd been running my mouth and saying the stuff I'd always said. It wasn't like Paul was slowly transitioning me to being a babyface. So we didn't expect that. I just expected that I would get some, you know, hometown cheers and, you know, some booze or whatever, you know, more, more in line with what we get in Philadelphia at the arena. And, you know, we went to that curtain. Franny was the first to say it to me. She said, oh my God, what a reaction. But, you know, when you're having those kind of conversations, you're at ease because you know you got the crowd and Franny's at ease because she, you know, she's not going to vomit. She's saying, oh, look, what a reaction. That's when you know everybody's on the same page and great things can happen when it happens. You know, Scott was, like you said, had, you know, made LT look like a, like a pro at WrestleMania. So somebody that's that well-versed, when he's got somebody in the ring that's a pretty good hand, whether it's me or anybody else in the ECW dressing room, you know Scott's going to deliver the goods on his side. And all that does is tell you then just to play your character off of it. And those things will fall into place. Doesn't mean you're going to have a five-star match every night. You might shit the bed on a night or two. But more times than not, you'll come out with this kind of a reaction, this kind of a match. I'm proud after watching that. I hadn't seen that in some time. I you know, looked at some still photos of it recently, but I hadn't seen the match in its entirety like that. Hey, I'm, I'm so proud of Scott, and, and I miss him and Chris both immensely because they were both great guys and both incredible talents. 
that are gone way too soon, like somebody in this business. But on this night, November, November 97, we delivered the goods. We didn't disappoint the 5,000 people in the audience there. We didn't disappoint the people that watched it on. And the big thing about this to me is that in each one of these pay-per-views from Bear to Legal to, you know, as these shows were building, you could sense that ECW was suddenly starting to roll downhill. It was no longer an uphill slog. Getting the pay-per-view was huge. And now to be having a pay-per-view just four, five, six months later, that's packing this kind of house. And we had a great buy rate off this show, turning two, 3,000 people away and having the kind of energy that you see in that crowd's pop. That's when you know you're doing something right. And now it's, it's water rolling downhill from here. You know, just everybody deliver the goods. And, and, and I started saying something about the Lance being center screen. I started saying something about him previously, you know, about the way he came in. And, you know, that was a daunting building to walk into the ECW arena, especially after it had gotten off the ground and people had their favorites and the heels they liked to boo and all that sort of thing. And Lance came in there. And Lance, you know, he's an incredible in-ring performer, but a little bit vanilla, doesn't have a great promo. I like his promos because it's, it's so regimented, sort of almost like, like a sergeant or something. But, you know, to come into that arena – it would have been really easy to see him fall flat because of the lacking those things. Instead, he, he went out there that night and delivered a grand slam match. And the people were with him after that since. I always really respected the guys that came in later, like Lance, that made that connection to the ECW audience because that wasn't an easy audience to connect with. They weren't very forgiving. You know, you go out and slip on a banana peel and you fucked up, you fucked up. You know, it was a really, really daunting place. And Lance and, and, and a handful of others came in afterwards and lived up to that. You know, the attitude in the ECW dressing room was, hey, you had a great match, I'm going to go out and top it. And it wasn't a conceited thing. It wasn't like, hey, I'm a better than you type of thing. We were ECW. I wasn't Shane Douglas. I was part of ECW. Lance wasn't Lance. Chris wasn't Chris. We were all part of ECW, and we all pushed and pulled in the same directions to get that company over. And like we talked about before in the previous episode, the fans that are in those buildings, whether it be Pittsburgh, Philadelphia, New York, or any place else that ECW was running at that time, which was quite a wide range of cities, those fans reacted like they were paid members of the team. And it was always incredible. It's the only place I ever worked that I looked forward to, you know, it might be a Wednesday, hey, only two more days I get to go to work. You know, I really looked forward to going to this place because every night was an adventure. Every night was fun. Not that we had great nights every night. So there were a lot of times we shit the bed, you know, for the fans that think that every ECW match was a five-star match. Sorry, it wasn't that, unfortunately. But every night was an adventure. Every night there was always a camaraderie in the back. And, yeah, there were some times that tempers flared between me and Sam Mann didn't get along at one point. And, you know, Taz didn't get along with some people at certain points and Perry Saturn. But let somebody from the audience attack one of our brothers or sisters. And that dressing room would empty out like a hornet's nest. You know, it's the only place I ever saw that. Only place. Well, this is fantastic. We appreciate you watching, I guess, your favorite match and moment of your career with us on the payoff. So thank you so much for being here. We appreciate it. Love reliving it. And anybody gets a chance, go back and watch it again in its entirety. And I'd love the feedback from everybody. See what their, what their thoughts are. Does the match still stand up to this day? Well, and it's, you know, it's obviously on the WWE Network. You can probably find it elsewhere online. So if fans want to reach out to you and touch base with you, how can they find you? I'm on 
Twitter at the franchise SD. My podcast airs every week on the uh, Vince Russo, uh, the brand uh, on the realm network. I do have a Facebook account. I haven't been on it for over a year. I'm just, I'm too busy, you know, so I primarily stick to Twitter right now and, and communicate that way. And then, uh, you know, and like for any kind of booking information, they can get me at my email at shanedouglasbooking at gmail.com. At this stage of my career, the latter stage of my career, obviously, I love talking to the fans. I love hearing their thoughts, you know, their feedback. Because when you break into this business, especially when I did with, you know, Bruno Sammartino and these larger-than-life people, you don't ever believe. I, in fact, I remember Mick Foley and I talking and saying that we didn't have the goods to be in those bigger companies. You know, we weren't as good as those guys. And, you know, later, once you start going down that avenue and learning a little bit more, you still have this, they're up here and you're down here feeling. To me, that pushed me. Not that I was trying to push me better than Bruno or even as good as Bruno, but to try to just be on the same mountain as Bruno. You know, he's at the top. I'm like, I can be at the bottom. As long as I'm in that same general area, and in this case, being in the same business, to look back and say, again, at this latter stage of my career, that I did have a moment in the business, that I did have an impact on the business, that I was a world champion that drew in this business that there are fans around the globe that know who Shane Douglas and the franchise and the triple threat is and was, is far beyond anything I could have ever imagined as a kid breaking into this business. You know, you, you couldn't possibly be that pretentious. You know, they say you got to learn to, to crawl before you can walk, walk before you can run. This business is, a, is an incredibly difficult business to pick up. And, you know, for years, I feel like a fish out of water or a turtle on my back. I just didn't get it. You know, I, I'm out there wrestling my ass off every night, and the old timers say, "You got to tell, learn to tell a story, kid." And I'm thinking, "What the hell are they talking about? Tell a story?" It, it certainly came about seven years in for me. Ironically, the same amount of time that, that uh, Steve Austin said it took him—not that you mastered it at seven years, but you knew that if something went south in the match, like it so often does, you get kicked in the head, you get winded, your opponent gets hurt, whatever. The crowd ain't buying it you knew that at the seven-year mark, you could not just snap your fingers and fix it, but you had the goods to be able to fix it and get it back on track. And, and so, yeah, it was always a, a cool thing to me looking back. You know, if I never had another match after tonight, to have been blessed to have been in the business, and, you know, you, you hear the phrase walking with giants, right? You know, I, I've walked literally with the giants in this business, Andre the Giant, Bruno San Martino, Randy Macho Man Savage, Rowdy Roddy Piper, Eddie Gilbert, so many guys that were, you know, today I think we throw phrases like icon and legend around way too frivolously. Those guys were the legit deal. You know, the Harley races of the world and, and, you know, all those guys. Those guys were legends. And to this day, if I get lost in a match, I will stop in my mind's eye. I'll think, what would Bruno do right now? What would Harley race do right now? What would Steamboat do right now? And that will help me get through that sort of quirky part of the match and get it back on track. I don't think the kids today can do that because they all have that reference point. I don't think there's many kids in the business today that remember Shane Douglas in these types of matches or Taz or Bam Bam or Chris Candido. And that's a real detriment for them. It's a shame because that's a hell of a reference point to have. You need to talk about Britannica encyclopedia sitting on the shelf when you watch these guys. Oh, it's time for the aftermath. 
Got to thank Shane for joining us again. Always fun to have him here and talking about these ECW matches. If you couldn't tell, you know, he loves talking about this stuff. Tom does too. And so these guys, you know, being able to revisit this stuff, just fantastic. So for me, you know, I do want to go back and watch the entire card because this one, just me, I feel like you need to take it in just with everything else that was happening. We'll touch on it a little bit more here, but it's just one of those, you know, a decent match, not bad. So Tom, what did you think about the payoff? Yeah, well, like I said, you know, Shane is an awesome guest. He just, he has great insight. He knows the business, the on-camera stuff, the behind-the-scenes stuff. So he's always just a really interesting person to talk to. And I look forward to having him on the show again. I also think, Jeff, it'd be fun. And, and this is something we need to discuss. But I'd love to watch matches with Shane that he wasn't even in, right? So I think there's going to be some guys like that. And I think Raven's another one that certainly comes to mind where let's watch some other classic matches with them and just get their perspective on, on what's going on and what they think of the work. It's a pleasure anytime we can watch moments with the guys that they're proud of. I mean, you know, Shane said it, it's the best night of his career and it meant a lot to him. And so I love just being able to hear the passion and, and the pride that some of our guests have in these particular moments. And, and they really will live on forever. Bam Bam's an underrated worker, man. Like, I, you know, it's a little goofy when he, you know, he always had that like outfit with the flames and the weird tattoo and it was a different look. And I don't know, part of me wonders if he had had a, a different maybe gimmick or dress differently. Like, could he have been a bigger star or, been remembered a little bit differently. I don't know, but I, I just thought he was fantastic. Again, anyone that can carry a NFL player to a pretty darn good match that main events a WrestleMania that earns points in, in my book. So again, I, I just thought Bam Bam was really good worker. I mean, he had a motor, he could do a lot of fun stuff. Jeff Wolf did at some point watch his stuff with Taz. Those were just some awesome, awesome matches that we would get a little bit in the, the next couple of years. So, you know, Shane mentioned, I mean, they, they followed this Vader flair format where in that case, Vader was just beating down on flair, beating down on him. I thought it was a, a good style of match, right? I mean, again, it's, it's a, it's a different type of match. It's not a five-star classic, lots of big moves. I mean, it's more of a slow build and I mean, they beat the hell out of each other. So it was different and I liked it. Again, you have to think about the broader show too. I mean, we had just gotten a 25-minute ladder match with tables and brutal violence, and I thought it complemented that match really well. So I enjoyed it, but really enjoyed the, the hometown aspect of it too, like I mentioned before. So with that being said, Jeff, let's talk about what happens from a storyline standpoint following this match for both Shane and Bam Bam. Yeah, you got it, man. The uh, for, for starters, Shane, after he won the belt this time, he actually held it. It was over 400 days. So he won it this November. He didn't lose it until January of 1999. And then, Tom, any idea who his opponent was? Who did he lose it to? He lost it to Taz. Correct. And I believe so. that was guilty as charged was the pay-per-view. I'm not sure. I don't have it in my notes. We can double check real quick because as I'm going okay. through this, you can, yeah. So, because that's yes. when, that's when he, because he lost the title and then jumped to WCW. He had already agreed to go to WCW and there was concern that he wasn't going to show up for that show. And, you know, of course he's like, look, I'm a pro man. And, and I remember this because not only did he show up for that pay-per-view, they beat the hell out of each other. And uh, look, man, 
some of these, like, I don't know, you want to call them old school, call them whatever you want. But a guy like that who could have gotten injured, who was getting a big money contract from WCW, what does he do? He goes out there and has a brutal match against Taz. It's stiff as hell obviously puts Taz over on the way out. And so all the respect in the world to Shane Douglas for this entire run. And again, that franchise quote unquote gimmick or nickname, that wasn't BS. He was the franchise. And Jeff, you mentioned it over a 400 day title run. And this isn't like work in a, you know, 10, 15 minute soft matches. This is 400 days of <laughs> getting the shit kicked out of you. <laughs> physical as hell. I mean, you saw it, man. It was, these guys didn't take nights off and there were probably shows where there was a couple hundred people in the audience and they were doing this stuff. So they've always gone on record. It was like, yeah, I mean, we didn't do this stuff with the TV cameras. We did it every time we were out there in front of the fans because they paid their hard earned money to be there. So yeah, for 400 days, he carried the company through this critical time where they're getting a TV deal and they're getting on pay-per-view and all this stuff's going on. And again, every match was stiff. So it was a great run. And, and that franchise thing, that was earned, not given to him. You are correct. It was guilty as charged. So look at you. So we got that. So Shane has about lost at that point. But this immediate aftermath, Douglas, kind of going into this match and after this match, he was actually injured. It sidelined him for a few months. So he's having all kinds of elbow issues. And so it was still showing up on TV, was still doing promos, but nothing physical. It was not the uh, fighting champ at this point. And then he, his in-ring debut was January 30th of 1998. And so just a, a couple months after that. But uh, prior to that, though, of course, a little exaggeration here, of course, as, as promoters are known to do from time to time. On the hardcore TV that kind of aired after this show, Heyman did play it up a little bit. You know, Douglas was there. He had Joey Styles kind of, you know, introducing, you know, they're doing what he does as well, too, kind of introducing is, is the, the post show for the pay per view and just kind of showing some different highlights and things from what happened. And Heyman saying that it, uh, Douglas's career was in jeopardy and all these different things. And so, you know, really trying to put over Douglas, too, even as the heel is like the hometown guy and he managed to beat Bam Bam. And so just a lot happened in that sense and, and in regards to trying to keep the kind of story active and kind of people talking about it but the, they didn't really have a rematch after that how it played out was that the next pay-per-view which was living dangerously it was actually one al snow who got an opportunity for the title shot which played out at wrestlepalooza who knows could be a match we talk about one day and have a special guest for that one we'll just have to see but shane douglas did retain over at snow for this one and so like we said went on to kind of hold the belt and just do well with this and so bam bam as well too we touched on it a little bit here but up to this point he had had a long career and he was still doing what he did too you know because time in wwf as well too and, and kind of all over the place and so both these guys kept going both continued to have successful careers after this and douglas you know like you said he earned that franchise tag he held the belt longer than anybody else and so it really earned it in that sense so it Tom, what other thoughts do you have about the aftermath? 
Yeah, that Al Snow match was really good and the build to it was excellent. So that was a that was a fun one, you know, and, and, and you thought, hey, maybe Al Snow could win. So I really liked the way that was executed. I think I would have liked to have seen maybe more of the Shane Bam Bam story. You know, it was tough back then because you'd, you'd have these long periods of time without pay-per-view. So it wasn't like they were doing them every month. And so I don't know, there's times where I hate the fact in today's product, you know that you're going to get a match, then you're going to get a rematch, then you're going to get a blow off match, right? And it's like three months in a row. And sometimes that's too much and they just can't keep the momentum for 12 weeks of TV and three pay-per-views. On the flip side, they were so focused on making every pay-per-view so special. So you really didn't see many rematches. Could they have done a stipulation match with Shane and Bam Bam and continue that story? Yeah, but uh, I also did like the Al Snow thing. But yeah, it was was interesting because it just kind of fizzled out a little bit. Now, I, I know that the thing I'm going to ask you for is going to piss me off, but go ahead and give me how this match was received and what some of the write-ups were, and then I'll politely disagree with it because I feel like I'm going to. Yeah. All right. So we'll start with the uh, Pro Wrestling Torch. It won't do the play-by-play here, but uh, the major news out of the show from a storyline standpoint was Shane Douglas retaining the ECW heavyweight title from Bam Bam Bigelow. The match was a disappointment with little fan heat in a one-dimensional match structure with Bigelow dominating offense throughout. Douglas had complimented Pittsburgh on that weekend's TV show, ripping on Philadelphia and New York fans in comparison. The plans for the crowd to pop for Douglas's home spots during the match didn't materialize as hoped. It was past 11.30 p.m. when the match got started, so the crowd may have just been tired and certainly were worn out by the previous three long and draining matches. The storyline of the match was simple. Bigelow beats up Douglas for almost the entire match, trying to build sympathy with the locals. Then after a few spots in the body of the match, turns the tables on Bigelow at the very end and wins with a belly-to-belly suplex. One of the greatest finishers ever, by the way. But anyways. Oh, you're a big uh, belly-to-belly guy. <laughs> you know, man. Just uh, Did, Didn't know that about you. So everything about the match was solid, except it was too one-dimensional, not to mention predictable. In the end, Bigelow set up a table and chair and was going to powerbomb Douglas through it, but Douglas surprised Bigelow with a belly-to-belly out of nowhere and won the match. So... Tom, before you go too crazy, I will read another one for you because we're just gonna we're gonna build up that anger here. So the Observer newsletter says Shane Douglas pinned Bam Bam in 25 minutes to retain the ECW title. Fans chanted LT at Bigelow before the match, which kind of indicated that Bigelow's WrestleMania match from 1995 had more of an impact on the crowd than the world title match they were about to witness, which who would have thunk? But Douglas got a real tepid reaction coming out, which had to shock everyone since it was expected he'd get the Hart and Calgary, Flair and Charlotte response. According to Heyman, the previous match was cut short because it was going nowhere and time was tacked on to this match. For the story, they told, and given that Bigelow weighs 360 pounds and that's going to limit one's stamina, the match simply went too long and was boring, even though Douglas took great punishment trying to get the match over. The crowd was totally dead for the first 18 minutes. Whether this was because all of its air was taken out by the previous match or because Douglas just wasn't as popular or Bigelow wasn't as aggressive enough on offense to tell the story or a combination of all of the above is the real question. Again, we don't need to get into the play-by-play, but it gave it a one and three-quarters stars. <clears throat> Bullshit. 
So before I flip it over to Tom here, because I'll give him the mic, but it does feel like a low score to me in that sense. They were, you know, I get it, but I do feel like it was low. I will agree with the crowd and their reaction after watching this video. Again, I I said it, I I do need to go back and just kind of watch the whole thing and kind of take it all in. It is, you know, very much like a a 10 hour marathon mania. Like you really need to, the pacing has to be done well. You got to know what matches lie where It, it needs to be done right. I felt like in the end, yeah, the crowd were reacting to some of the big spots, you know, they're going to, you know, the table at the end there, there was a you know, the table earlier as well to some of the outside stuff, hitting him with the crutches, like it was there and they were reacting to that, but you know, you're always going to get that pop and I get it's the ECW crowd, but I just felt like the low roar of the crowd was louder than normal. I get that's just part of watching ECW, but it just kind of graded me wrong this time. And so just one of those things, you know, like I said, I think the score is low, but at the same time, I get why it got ding. So I will yield the rest of my time, Tom. Go for it, buddy. Yeah, I just, I mean, I, I don't think it was as bad as the descriptions that you just read. I don't. The style of match was different, right? I mean, it was the slow prodding, big guy beating up the small guy. It did go on too long. You probably could have caught a good five to 10 minutes out of the middle, but, you know, they had, they had pay-per-view time to fill. I think they probably, you know, again, 2020 hindsight, I think you could have maybe had Bam Bam go out and cut a promo at the beginning of the night, just healing on the Pittsburgh fans or something like just something to really establish him as a heel or to get Shane over more. But I think it was just confusing because it's like, well, the franchise is a heel, right? So it's like, you know, just because he's in black and gold and coming to Pittsburgh, like, are we supposed to cheer him? So I think there was just a little confusion there. And, you know, sometimes I like in, in wrestling when off the air, they have a guy come out and cut a heel promo so that when the TV cameras are rolling, they get booed more. So that that might have helped. It was hot as hell in that building. They had those big WWF lighting structures in there. And it was just, I mean, it was a long night. Jeff, to your point about the crowd, maybe it was a little bit too predictable, right? And these ECW fans were tough. And so it was like, all right, we know Shane's going to win. We know he's the hometown guy. You know, we know that the papers give you is going to go off in this much time. So he's going to get beat up for another 12 minutes. So maybe it did feel a bit predictable and there's, there's something that could have been done to, to shake things up a little bit. But again, I think it was better than above. And I just am a firm believer that at this time, even if ECW put on, for them, a mediocre show, I still thought it was pretty damn good. Okay. And you look at some of the junk that was being aired on WWF and WCW TV at the time, and you knew you were going to get a good three hour pay-per-view with guys beating the shit out of each other. Didn't always make sense from a storyline standpoint, but you know, they always threw some good surprises in there. They always had really good rough brawling and, and I enjoyed it. You know, it was, it was kind of a polarizing show. I mean, the observers poll results were 33% said thumbs up, 55% said thumbs down, and then another 11% had it in the middle. So I think some people really enjoyed the show. Some people didn't, it didn't seem like there was much in the middle. So a polarizing show, polarizing main event, but overall I enjoyed it. And, you know, at least go back and watch the end. It was, a, I thought it was a really good ending and, and, you know, it was kind of fun to see the belly to belly out of nowhere. And Jeff, is it safe to assume that, you know, if you uh, ever wrestle a match, you would like to use the belly to belly as a finisher? 
I'd use the Bailey to belly, but whatever. So um, who knows? That was that, like we talked about it previously. If, you, if I'm going to go through a table, I would not want it to be because of a, of a belly to belly. So there's better ways to protect me. So. You know, okay. So do you ever, you ever see like on Twitter, do you ever see like the tailgating things where people like jump off trucks and stuff and go through tables? The city of Buffalo loves doing wrestling moves after football games. Those guys yeah, I, I actually saw the one in Buffalo that, that was yesterday. But yeah, it was they, that, every week last season too. Yeah, it's they're crazy. Okay, so so they do these. I <laughs> this is how big of a mark I am. I get pissed off because there's no psychology, right? Like it's just one person jumping through a table. So it's like ideally, like I'd want you know you to do a splash onto me, not just you jump through a table for no reason, okay? Or power bomb or something like that. And then the other thing is they never sell it. Like if it were me, I'd sell the hell out of it. It's got to like, def- if, you, if you're going to wear a belt, you got to defend a belt. Like you got to, you got to be true to the rules of the, of the, or the spirit of wrestling. Yep. So, so this is, this is a complete shoot story. Okay. You saw the picture of me dressed up like macho man for my buddy's birthday back in December, right? Right. Of course. Belt, boots, the whole deal. I'll, I'll post it on Twitter. All right. So one of his brothers, okay, he's, he's a Mark. Okay. And he's like, Hey, you want me to hit you with a chair? I'm like, yeah, of course. Like, you don't even have to ask, okay? So he, he hits me in the back with a chair, right? Like in front of, you know, 20, 30 people. So I completely sell it, okay? The rest of the night, okay? Why? Because I respect the wrestling business. That's why. So a couple of days later, the one couple that was there, like asked my buddy whose birthday it was like, hey, did Tom end up going to the hospital? Like, was, is he okay? See, that, that's the way the business should be. So I, my point being is that, you know, if you're going to play wrestling or if you're going to go through tables, you're going to take a chair shot, respect the business enough to sell it. The word of the day is exaggeration, my friend. Like, just, you, you got to put it out there. So, yeah. Good so I, I will no, never apologize. Absolutely. I'll never apologize for selling a chair shot and adding a little psychology into things. Yep. That's good stuff, though. So, All right. Payoff score. Got it. Well, keep going you, go, you go first. Yeah, I'll, I'll go first. You, know, you, you all know one through ten, our payoff scored. We look at it all: the build, the the crowd, the commentary, the aftermath, just everything. So, no specific formula, just what we're thinking. So, I'm actually going to give this one. I went back and forth on this one. I'm going to give it a four, and I'll explain myself. I, I knew that something was off when, like we said, the hometown guy Shane, his pop. It was really barely louder than Francine's in the opening here. You know, good for our friend Francine. She got that big pop, but definitely not what you would have hoped for in this moment, I'm sure. And like you said, I'm sure it was a little bit of shock happening backstage and what was going on. You know, the match had some all right spots and, you know, nothing that I was pausing and kind of rewinding and going back toward. I can't say it was, you know, it, it, Tom and I are going to disagree on this one. You know, I, I thought the, the match was okay, but like I said it a little bit, something about the crowd on this one just really, really kind of graded me wrong. It really just kind of, it, it was annoyed. And I don't know if they were just louder than, I say louder than normal, which it's a wrestling crowd. So that's supposed to be normal, but it's just like one of those, I felt like a lot of it was, you know, if you're at like, you know, I, I say a conference or you're, you're in like a crowded bar or something. And just like that base level noise was just a lot louder than I felt like it should have been. I, you know, I'm not looking for like new Japan and just quiet during some of the matches and some of that stuff happening. But at the same time, it's just, I don't know. It, it, so that's, I'm not 
dinging the match itself uh, if for that i would say if it was purely based on the match i'd probably give it a little bit higher maybe like a five or five and a half but the crowd on this one just really bothered me and i don't know what it was so like i said i'm gonna go with a four i'm gonna stick with that it was all right you know so tom what do you got all right so i'm gonna put this one at a six and a half obviously i liked it better than you and and the sheets but uh, look i think the issue was it was long it was slow the way ecw was where everything was kind of at a frantic pace and quick moving and hard hitting you know a match like this especially in the main event could feel like a bit long and slow just because it wasn't the style so yeah you rebook this match and there's just got to be some more smoke and mirrors or something to just keep the pace going a little bit more and maybe it's more interference maybe it's just a different type of match but yeah I think that that again based on the ECW style it probably needed to have a little bit more pace and action to it okay so that would be my negative the other thing too is and again where where I come in at a six and a half and and I probably liked it more than most people is I, I love the organic hometown stuff you don't see a ton of it in wrestling, right? I mean, like, I think of, like, CM Punk winning the title in Chicago. That was awesome. Some of the heart stuff in Calgary and in Canada, Flair and Charlotte. I mean, there's not a ton of that, right? I mean, you don't associate Hulk Hogan with a city. You don't associate Randy Savage with a city, right? I mean, a lot of wrestlers, right? I mean, you can go down the list. Most of the all-time greats, like, yeah, they're from a place, but like it's not a noticeable hometown thing or they didn't book it for them to be successful there, right? Like one of my favorite, I'd say, memories of kind of this era, if you will, is when The Rock came back in Miami against Cena. Dude, it was just, it felt different, man. It's like the hometown kid kind of thing. And so I, I really like that. And that's what I liked about this show. But again, you don't, you don't have a ton of that. So when something like that does happen and you know, he's promoting it and his family and friends are in the audience, I thought it was kind of cool. The last thought I'm going to, I'm going to leave you with here, Jeff, before you wrap things up is I wonder what ECW would be like now. And I, and I actually, I want to talk about that more on our after show, but like the WWF lent their lighting to this show and it was way better lit than any other show. And I, I wonder, well, what would have happened if they had more of that stuff or they had better production values and, and you know, what, what would that have, have meant? And, you know, again, this era, everything was about pay-per-view, right? I mean, yeah, they, they might be able to make a little bit of money on a TV deal, but everything in the, in the business in, in 97 was we need to get on pay-per-view and we need to make money off of this. And so, you know, TV and pay-per-view mattered so much more in that format. So I wonder now if anyone could access ECW on a streaming service of some type, would more eyeballs have seen it? And then if they had an eye pay-per-view on like a fight TV for 20 bucks, I mean, the fan base was so rabid and they were always constrained with distribution. I just wondered like nowadays, I feel like they would have had so much more success. They would have stayed in business. It was just a, it wasn't the right era for them per se. So again, it just, I was thinking about this show because it was 4,400 in attendance, a big gate. And I'm like, man, ECW had the popularity. It was, it was the business issues and some constraints that really prevented them from being viable. I mean, for good and, and, and sustainable. And so I think this climate just of technology and the way things are distributed, I think they would have been successful. So six and a half on my payoff score. I enjoyed it more than, than most did, but 
that's why we have different scores and that's why it's uh, so subjective. It's not a uh, objective science like uh, some would have you believe. <laughs> so Jeff, with that being said, let's wrap us up. I think that's our biggest difference. I believe it's so. It's a, yeah, it's a quite, quite a bit. You said, four, you said four or four and a half. I said four. Okay. So we were off by two and a half then. Yeah. Yeah. So that's fine. So, but that's all right. That's good stuff though. So not a ton else to add here. Uh, you know, like I said, we kind of shared our opinion here, but we got to call out here and, and, Props to Shane Douglas once again for joining us. You could find him on Twitter. He's just at the franchise SD. That's at the franchise SD. So make sure to check him out there. Uh, you know, it will definitely bring him back again. Tom's a talker. Shane's a talker. So we're going to have them both come back. <laughs> well, Tom's always here, but we're going to have, you know, Shane come back and, and talk about some more. So that's exciting. And even some of the matches we referenced here today, hopefully we can bring you uh, an episode on some of those too. We got to, I'm sure we've got some Al Snow fans out there. So. So we'll bring that one one day too. So Jeff, do you, uh, do you know, you, you called me a talker. Do you know what one of my nicknames is on the golf course? Oh boy. What is it? Human podcast. Cause I, I talk that, the entire time. I thought that was going to be a joke, but that you didn't. No, no, no. That's, that's right. very, yeah. My, my buddy started that one. He's like, Oh yeah. Good luck getting a word in when uh, you're riding around with the human podcast for four hours. <laughs> I don't know about you because I, I was the introvert in like high school. And so now as we sit here and record a podcast, I don't think you can say that about either of us in any way, but that's okay. And so the introvert here, and even for those introverts, they're just kind of sitting at home or extrovert, whatever you're listening to us, subscribe to the payoff, give us those five stars, spread the word about the show, love getting tagged on Twitter, love the interaction we see there it's at payoff pod. So make sure to uh, drop a line there. Let us know what you think of the show, post some reviews, let us know too how we're doing because we love seeing that stuff. And of course, you can support us on Patreon, just that one tier, payoffpatreon.com, bringing you all that content uh, for one price. So um, with that, Tom, <clears throat> wham, bam, bam. Thank you, ma'am. Let's get to that closing. As always, thank you for joining us on The Payoff. <laughs> <laughs>